This year, I am driving students once again to the middle school and high school every single morning. <laughs> if we leave at 8.15 in the morning, it's great. If we leave at 8.16 in the morning, it's not so great. On Wednesday, I got to the middle school, Maddie got out, I pulled around past the front of the school only to stop again because the lady in front of me apparently had not let her student out. It's okay, 10 seconds pass and the passenger door opens and the student gets out. Okay, we're off. Nope, she still stopped. Another 10 seconds pass and a back door opens and another student gets out. This student needs a bag that's in the trunk, the boot of this SUV, and it's one of those automatic ones, so it needs to open slowly. <laughs> and she waits until it's all the way open to grab her bag, and then of course the door has to close, so at this point I'm thinking, okay, we're, we're on our way now. No, the third door opens, and a third student gets out, and three middle schoolers. Woo! So I turn to Jillian in that moment and I say to her, this is why daddy doesn't own handguns. <laughs> and she laughed, but I was only partly kidding. <laughs> okay? When Jenny and I got married, we made a pact, not unlike the one that Jack Benny had with his wife. We agreed that divorce was never going to be an option. Murder, however, Murder was always going to be something on the table, but not divorce. And I can tell you there have been many, many, many times that Jenny has wanted to murder me over these 28 years, and there's been at least one time, <laughs> at least one time that I have wanted to murder Jenny over these past 28 years. The only guns that we have in our house are water guns. And that's for good reason. So even though I'm your pastor, even though I'm an S on the disc profile and our theme song is Why Can't We Be Friends, even though I'm a peacemaker at heart, under the right circumstances, I think I could be capable of at least acts of violence, if not outright murder. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, so are you. So are you. You must not murder. All right, that's one of the Ten Commandments. You must not murder. We heard it growing up, thou shalt not kill. Now, this commandment is like the one on the idols. Don't make for yourself graven images or idols. We hear this commandment and we typically think, oh, I haven't knocked anyone off. This is, wow, that's like, Pastor Max, that's two out of 10 just for showing up. And I, I didn't even need to try. I haven't made idols and I haven't killed nobody. Woo, two out of 10, that's something. Those are points on the scale. Um, the other thing about this commandment is that uh, this is the commandment that everybody can kind of get behind. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or an atheist or, or even some communist, like pretty much we can all get behind, hey, like let's not be killing on each other. And, and we kind of think of God in heaven looking down with this Hey, could you, could you not kill each other? Do you know how hard it is to make good humans? 
Don't make me come down there. Oh, wait, right? And so we think it's so simple. How many of you have daydreamed from time to time of getting on a plane, going to the Middle East, getting all the people from Syria and Palestine and Egypt and Jordan and all these places, sitting them down and saying, come on, you kill them, they kill you because they're mad at you for killing them, then you kill more of them, this is stupid, stop it. <laughs> Just stop it, it's not rocket science, stop killing each other. Don't think every American president since Jimmy Carter hasn't tried that, okay? So murder, I wanna make the case today, murder is not a radical Islam problem. Murder is not a Chicago gang problem. Every single one of us is capable of murder. Every single one of us will harbor murderous thoughts. And if we're not careful as Americans and we don't change course, I'm gonna tell you right now, there's gonna be a whole lot more violence and there's gonna be more killing in America because of the hatred that we have for one another. And here's how I wanna unpack this commandment for us today. Hatred and anger in our hearts, unchecked, undealt with, left to fester and boil, eventually erupts into violence. And violence, unchecked, unabated, erupts into killing. It's true for every single one of us. It's true for every single moment in human history. And it's true for every single culture. So if you brought a paper Bible, we're in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, verse 13. You must not murder. Now remember, the Ten Commandments are telling us what it means to be human. And they're telling us the kind of God that God is. And the Sixth Commandment is simple. You must not murder. It's two words in Hebrew, lo ratzach. I, I stink at Hebrew, but that's my attempt. Lo ratzach, two words, don't murder. Ratzach is one of eight Hebrew words for taking life or killing. Ratzach is not the word used for execution or capital punishment. When somebody's accused of something and they go through the testimony and the witnesses and an appeal and all that stuff that's spelled out in the Levitical law, which by the way, they didn't always follow. Ratzach is not the word used for that when someone's stoned to death for, execute, for being executed. Ratzach is not the word used of soldiers who are killing in a war or a military campaign. Ratzach is not the word used when you kill a lamb to make some lamb chops. Ratzak is not the word used when you're making a sacrifice in the temple. Ratzak has some very specific meaning to it. So what exactly is Ratzak talking about? Don't murder. Well, it's talking about several different things. One, the thing that we would call premeditated murder or murder in cold blood. You marry my dad. My dad is head over heels with you. I'm pretty sure that my dad's gonna leave all his money to you, so I kill you, because I don't want that to happen. I just rotsocked, okay? Voluntary manslaughter. I find you in bed with my wife, and I fly off the handle, and I kill both of you. Crime of passion. That's, I just rotsocked. <laughs> Involuntary manslaughter, or what we call negligent homicide. Someone dies because of your recklessness or carelessness. 
I despair over the state of the church at a bar in Lexington, and I get plastered drunk, and I drive home, and on the way home, I cross the median on 27, and I kill three people. I just rot socked, okay? Is this making sense? Some. Some. <laughs> Despite my own personal preferences and where I stand on some issues, there are cases in the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament, where the taking of life is actually permitted. Uh, here are several of them for self-defense, for the protection of one's life or one's family, as a soldier in the line of duty, and yes, even capital punishment. In Genesis chapter 9, there's something powerful that God says to us, and it's through the story of um, it's on the heels of uh, Noah and the flood. I will require, God says, the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. If anyone murders a fellow human, must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. Now, some of us have issues with capital punishment because uh, we think it's inequitable. We think that it's unjust. We think that sometimes in the carrying out of capital punishment that there are horrific um, uh, miscarriages of justice. Uh, but in this passage, what I want you to see is, uh, well, it's not up there, but in Genesis 9, what's really going on is God is saying, human life is priceless. If God had decided to put a value on human life and said, every time you take a human life, it's gonna be $5 million to the family and 50 years in prison, human life suddenly has a value to it. But human life is really priceless. Every single human life is priceless, is absolutely priceless. Jesus takes this commandment and he actually elevates it. In Matthew chapter five, this is what we're told. Jesus is talking here and he says, you've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. We just heard that. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, if you're angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Isn't that interesting? Murder and anger have the same consequence, the same punishment, the same consequence is, is listed. Why on earth would Jesus say that? In part because murder is the outward manifestation of an inward attitude, of an inward state of the heart. When we call someone an idiot in anger or contempt, we're really dehumanizing them. We're taking their value and bumping it down several notches, aren't we? And in our anger and contempt, what often happens is we take away their dignity and worth to enable us to mistreat them because now they're not fully human, they're several notches below. And it justifies our mistreatment of them. Jesus is warning us that anger and hatred lurk inside every single one of us. And again, hatred and anger left unchecked eventually erupts into violence and violence left unchecked, unabated, erupts into killing. Paul issues a similar warning in the book of Romans. 
Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Have empathy. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Some of us would like to go, amen. Don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you're honorable and do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. There's a vicious cycle that happens with cursing and anger, and in order to break the cycle, you've gotta understand where the other person is coming from. You gotta understand what their hurt is, what their pain is, and he's talking about empathy in this passage from Romans chapter 12. I think this commandment, you must not murder, is still relevant to you and me today. I do. According to the American Psychological Association, uh, there's a connection. So they've done a thousand studies between violence on a screen, whether it's a TV show or a video game, and real life violence, okay? Um, and, and what they found is that 980 of those 1,000 studies established a definitive link between violence on the screen and violence in real life. Did you know that by the time a kid enters middle school, they've witnessed 8,000 murders and 100,000 acts of violence? Did you know that? Colonel, uh, Lieutenant, retired Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman uh, issued this warning a few years ago. He said, the stuff kids do in video games today is the same stuff we've used for years in the United States military to desensitize and train soldiers to kill. Again, anger and hatred left unchecked becomes violence and violence becomes killing. You're not immune, I'm not immune, we're not immune. So in, in light of this passage, in light of what God is saying about human life, about our own hearts, let me ask some questions. Who are you angry with right now? Who are you mad at? Do you have an ongoing issue with anger? Is there anyone that you secretly wish were dead, just gone? Would you be willing to let go of that anger and trust God for the outcome? I try to make all of sermons at Generations very, very practical. So how do you and I take this home? Well, the first thing that I would say, and it kills me to say this as a Protestant in some ways, John Paul was right. John Paul II called the United States and Europe uh, a culture of death. Um, and he was talking about some very specific things there, uh, but we see it in the mass shootings that take place in our country on an almost daily basis. The truth is we no longer believe or affirm that everyone, every life is priceless. We just don't believe that anymore. It shows in how we treat the unborn. It shows in how we treat the elderly and the infirm, the diseased and the disabled. It shows in how we treat the unwanted in our society. The second thing is there are some things we can do. There are some things we can do. We can teach our kids to resolve conflict peacefully. Parents, you can do a huge thing by teaching your kids to resolve conflict 
peacefully. We can pray for peace. We can intercede for the unborn, the disabled. We can open our homes to foster children. We can open our communities to refugees. We can care for the sick and the dying. We can send relief to people who are oppressed. One very practical thing that you and I can do is to monitor our anger, especially when it's directed to another person. Anger left on the inside, unchecked, unabated, unresolved, undealt with, can turn us into bitter people, hateful people, and bitter, hateful people wound others, whether it's physical or verbal, right? We, we know this to be true. So it's unwise and it's dangerous to allow anger to go on and to loom in your heart. Um, Another thing that we can do very specifically is we can pray for our enemies. We're commanded to do that in scripture, but it's interesting. For some of us, your enemy might be those radicalized Muslim terrorists. Pray for them. It's possible that the enemies in your mind are, uh, because you're still in school, it's the popular kids or the football team. They stink, and you've got all these things that are strong emotions that you feel about them, and you want to devalue them as people. Pray for them. Pray for them. It could be your sister or your parents that you hate so much, and every time her name or his name comes up, it's like, and the speech comes out of your mouth, directed at your spouse, right? Pray for them. It could be that you have come to the conclusion that America is gonna erupt in this chaos and people are gonna eat their children because of Democrats, you should pray for them. Or Republicans, <laughs> you should pray for them, right? Um, it could be that it's Hillary Clinton or Elizabeth Warren or Matt Bevan or Donald Trump is someone that you see as the enemy. Pray for them. Pray for them. Again, let me draw this out for you. Hatred left unchecked, unabated, unaddressed, unrepented will eventually erupt into violence. And violence will eventually erupt into killing. You don't need me to tell you about your Facebook and social media feeds. You've seen the hate. There's a lot of hate on cable TV from other people that are friends of ours. And, and there's a lot of hate that Americans have right now. And we're now starting to see the little bit of moments of violence come out. This is the first election cycle. I can tell you locally, people have had their campaign signs defaced, stolen, and, and they're beside themselves about it. Um, there have been campaign offices, both Democrat and Republicans, that have been vandalized. And just in the last 30 days, in Minnesota, let me tell you something about Minnesota. We think we're nice in Kentucky. <laughs> we think we're nice in Kentucky. They're truly nice in Minnesota. There's nice and there's Minnesota nice. And Minnesota nice is so nice, you often wonder if they're really just Canadian. Okay? But in Minnesota, two people running for the state legislature, one was sucker punched in the gut. And this lady right here, Sarah, blocked the person and they only hit her arm. But we've got candidates now that are being physically assaulted. Again, gang, I'm telling you, this is like a canary in the minefield. 
Hatred left unchecked erupts into violence, and violence erupts into killing, which is why John tells us this. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart, and you know that murderers don't have eternal life in them. We need and must be the peacemakers of this world. It's needed. It's needed. Don't write off this commandment. It has so much to say to us for where we are as Americans in just two simple words, lo ratzach. <laughs>